the one thing that I try and emphasise is, yes, the role of bystanders. You know, it's often hard for the person experiencing those double standards to call them out. And as I say, when you do, I mean, I was everything from, you know, one quote, the handmaiden of Hussein, you know, Princess Precious was bandied around. As soon as you challenged, there's only so much people at the heart of it, you know, can deal with. Welcome to The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full, with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, do take a moment to tell your friends or give us a rating. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. In 1995, at age 26, Natasha Stott Despoja became the youngest woman to sit in the federal parliament. Six years later, she became the youngest person to head a political party, becoming leader of the Australian Democrats. During her 13 years in parliament, Natasha campaigned on education, privacy, genetics, stem cell research, paid parental leave, social justice, and of course, an Australian as head of state. Since leaving parliament, she's served as Australia's ambassador for women and girls, as a member of the Committee on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women, and as the founding chair of Our Watch, the National Foundation to Prevent Violence Against Women and Their Children. She's somebody who's made a huge mark on politics, but who has managed the transition to a post-political life extraordinarily well. And I want to explore today uh, some of those questions about making a big mark in two careers. Natasha, thanks so much for appearing on the Good Life podcast today. It's a pleasure. So let's start with your mum. Shirley Stott Despoyer, um, first arts editor of any paper in Australia. Um, she, you grew up in a single parent family, so she must have had a huge influence on you. Um, what's she like? Well, these days uh, she is still very politically aware, still a feisty feminist. You know, for a while there, she used to introduce me as. This is my daughter, the politician. I'm Shirley, the activist. So that gives you an idea of, um, <laughs> yes, my mother's influence is certainly very strong. Uh, but she raised my brother Luke and me, um, effectively single-handedly, uh, and imbued in us, you know, a passion for education and fairness and equality, but also taught me uh, literally to speak up. My mum has a disability, she's deaf. And so I guess I had a very early introduction to the concept that life is not always easy or equal um, for people generally, um, for women in particular. Um, but certainly um, my mum has been, I guess, a huge, if not, well, the greatest influence in my life. Doesn't mean we always get on. We certainly have some interesting and spirited debates about everything from you know politics to literature and a range of things and uh, she's getting a bit older these days so she's slowed down a lot which has uh, been quite actually confronting to, to see and, and deal with as well. Tell me a bit more about how her deafness uh, opened your eyes to, uh, to, to other people's challenges because she became deaf as an adult didn't she? Uh, relatively young uh, in her 20s so this is not unusual in some members of that side of my family, the, the Stott side. Uh, it's interesting because I find, uh, on the positive side, I learnt to lip read very early um, because as people who are hearing impaired or deaf, you know, will tell you, you, you often have to look at people, the way they speak, read their lips. Um, it's People often make the mistake of speaking loudly uh, or yelling at people or talking into someone's ear, but actually it's clear speaking that makes a fundamental difference. And I have to say I occasionally use this trick in the Senate. Um, I remember when one opposition, no, one government member had a go at me and said something and I could see what he was saying. And I challenged him and he was just shocked, you know, how did she know? But I don't mean to be flippant because that's, you know, one of many things. What it did teach me was a lot about advocacy in particular spaces, including disabilities, and deafness is a hidden disability. There are a lot of people who say to you today, or to me, I didn't even know your mum was deaf because the discrimination, particularly for a relatively young woman, dealing with that over many years um, certainly took its toll physically and, and at times mentally for her. Um, Yes, it just, I look back now to see what she achieved. 
you know, even when I became a mother, you know, for the first time and, you know, I guess you'd appreciate we sort of take it for granted if our children cry in a cot at night, yes. you can hear them. And my mum said, I said, how did you cope? And she said, I just didn't sleep. I'd just sit by the cot in case you woke up. And so those little stories make me realise in retrospect, you know, some of the difficulties, but also it was a source of discrimination against her in her working life. Uh, and as if it wasn't bad enough being a, you know, a woman in a male-dominated profession of journalism. Mm. Um, so, but, you know, I look on the positive side. I, um, it compelled me to do work in that area. I'm really proud of the fact that my valedictory was the first speech in the federal parliament that was captioned, or not captioned, was signed. And you couldn't believe, oh, probably you would actually, how difficult it was to actually get an Auslan signer, mm. uh, to get permission, because it was fought tooth and nail by so many people uh, in the parliament, if not sort of the bureaucracy of the parliament. These days, I would like to think it's de rigueur that we had captions, that we have signed, signing in our parliaments. We certainly do on national broadcasts now and press conferences. Um, but yes, a lot of my work on captions and mandating captions uh, for television and other broadcast services, that was really, you know, instigated as a consequence, not just of mum, but the deaf and hearing impaired sector generally. And anyway, you know, nothing about us without us. So I think it's really important that we empower and support people with disabilities generally, but also people who are deaf in particular to have their own political advocacy campaigns and maybe enter parliament. My uh, colleague Julie Owens gave a 90-second statement uh, a while back, uh, entirely in uh, signed, and you can only imagine what she needed to do to talk to the Hansard people beforehand about uh, how that speech should be delivered. But, yeah, it was a remarkable thing to, uh, to, to have happen. Uh, so I, I think, you know, even when you're in your 90s, uh, people are still going to be asking you to uh, talk about what it was like to be the youngest woman in Parliament. So uh, invariably this question is going to haunt you and I'm not going to hold back from asking it. Well, what was it like to, to break, uh, break ground, to walk in as a 26-year-old into this place, uh, run, you know, still now but even more in 1995 by crusty old blokes? Well, you do make me giggle because it is true when I'm introduced in that way, particularly in international uh, forums over the years, the youngest ever woman to enter the federal parliament. And then they see me and people are like, crikey, what's the average age of the Australian parliament? <laughs> She's really old. And of course, it was a long time ago. Um, obviously, you know that extraordinary feeling and privilege of walking into that hallowed institution. And it's terrifying at any time on occasions, but for your first time to walk in, and I'd been in the parliament, I'd worked in the parliament, as you know, but to walk onto the floor of the chamber and suddenly look around and be conscious of your relative difference. I was the youngest person in the room. I was one of, well, around 14.9% of the parliament overall was female. Uh, my first, you know, my swearing in moment was characterised by, you know, my Doc Martens footwear or, you know, headlines in the paper, you know, one one man really actually dedicated a whole column in a paper to my cheap purple suit. Um, I always joke now, you know, the devil wore Portman's, not Prada, sort of on that occasion. But <laughs> that at first was, it was stunning to me, the thought that this little bit of history that I might have, you know, contributed to was being superficially portrayed. And so that at first was a bit of a shock. But then, of course, I was more familiar with some of the other things with which women in public life contend, uh, but particularly in politics and parliament, the double standards, the ridiculous stereotypes, some of the attitudes and trivialisations that are, you know, they're demeaning, but they're also quite debilitating. And the idea that you had to tackle those issues on a daily basis instead of, hey, I've just done a private member's bill on genetic privacy and non-discrimination and what can I get more attention for? So I think I look back now and don't realise the level of effort that had to go in all the time to wanting to get beyond the headlines or the stereotypes. And I think at the time I was so busy doing my job that thankfully it didn't completely undermine or debilitate me in the way I suspect sometimes it was intended to do. 
So I was leaving a parliamentary vote this week and walked, found myself walking out the entrance with most of the coalition members. And as I went, uh, uh, one of the more junior coalition blokes reached over to a female senior colleague uh, and just patted her on the back. Uh, and we kept on walking and I got chatting to the, to the colleague, uh, to the female co colleague and said, it was a bit strange. I would never do that to uh, to someone in my own party. And she said, yep, that I found it a bit a bit off-putting, but you've got to pick your battles. Um, how did you find that? Because you must have faced worse, uh, worse treatment than that. Well, I think you'll find, and obviously the revelations of the last few months have indicated that women, regardless of their age, their background, and obviously sometimes, you know, uh, that's compounded by your background. If you're from a traditionally underrepresented group, if you're a woman of colour, Aboriginal woman, you know, all of these things can actually make your experiences of that gender, gender inequality worse. But I think we've been hearing similar stories across the board that there is, at worst, there's sort of a licence for unwanted touching or comments. Uh, again, you know, the idea that I couldn't, I don't think I would have had a week in Parliament no, a week would not have gone by without someone commenting on my appearance. And whether that was just arriving to the chamber and a walk on a working day, and I, I know exactly which senator used to stand there and say, oh, you should wear uh, shorter skirts, or why do you always cover up your legs, or oh, it's a nice jacket. And don't get me wrong, there might be circumstances where you or I compliment each other on, you know, a new outfit or how you, a good haircut or whatever, but this, there was just an acceptance that this was appropriate behaviour. And that's not to say that women like me didn't call it out, because we tried. But the lack of critical mass in those days meant that you were quickly painted as, you know, the princess or the complainer or, you know, obviously I was a bit of a feminist, so that, you know, the F word was pretty liberally applied, but never been afraid of it. So I, I think, you know, hearing from that colleague say you pick your battles, Yes, but isn't it just extraordinary that in this day and age you even have to contemplate some of those issues? But I think the media is also culpable, and it certainly was in my day. I think people are making up for that, and I think there's an acceptance now among the fourth estate that they have to do better. But that certainly was a compounding feature for me during my time as a relatively young senator. Because, hey, let's face it, Andrew, 26 isn't, you know, it's not that young. It was comparatively, but still. So one of the things I really regret when it comes to sexism in politics is that I didn't spend more time in my first term, 2010 to 2013, um, attacking those who were using deeply sexist language to, uh, to criticise Julia Gillard. Um, I took my cue from the Prime Minister and from those around her who were, taking, who were basically thinking uh, that uh, calling attention to that would uh, distract from the government's agenda. Um, but I think in retrospect that was, that was wrong and, and I probably should have just spent more time giving speeches about outrageous sexism or, or media interviews and so on. Do you look back on the way in which you handled some of that gendered stuff and think, oh, if I had my time again I'd, I'd tweak it this way, do, the, do that differently? Well, it's interesting because I was part of Kate Ellis's book launch recently, and I don't know if you've had an opportunity yeah. to read it. In fact, read have it. you Love. spoken to her yet? Because Not it's yet. a wonderful, yeah, conversational read. It's quite serious, but it's also clever and funny. She talks with regret about not doing more. And the one thing that I try and emphasise is, yes, the role of bystanders. You know, it's often hard for the person experiencing those double standards to call them out. And as I say, when you do, I mean, I was everything from, you know, one quote, the handmaiden of Hussein, you know, Princess Precious was bandied around a lot. As soon as you challenged, and there were days when I'd looked to colleagues, and there were times when I had really inappropriate comments or behaviour, I would confront that person's friend or colleague and I would say, you have to help me, you have to call this out. Sometimes they did it, not publicly, but sometimes privately. And I think, there's only so much people at the heart of it, you know, can deal with. Good bystanders are increasingly important in society now. Men are the most important allies in so many respects too. So it's one thing for you to look back with regret, but you took your cue from a very strong, impassioned, bold woman. You know, we all were sort of saying, come on, Julia, you know, call this out. But no, she, you know, chose a, a, you know, a course of behaviour and we 
may not have understood that at the time, but in retrospect, it's like, wow, you're dealing with so many things. So I'm not going to have regrets about that because I know I tried and I was passionate about making the environment better for women who came after me. And I think that's happening. I think it's changing now. And that's what we all should focus on. By all means, let's expose any of the past injustice. I'm all for that. But I also know the challenge now is changing not only the processes and what's acceptable and through codes of conduct, but that culture has to change. And I have to believe that it will. Uh, so uh, in terms of how your career then developed, you, you became leader quite quickly, uh, age 31 in uh, 2001. Uh, did you feel you were sufficiently prepared for uh, for leadership? Are there things you know now that you wish you'd known as, as, a, as a leader? Oh, of course, absolutely. I mean, there are things I know now that I would have loved to have known as a 26-year-old senator, but it doesn't make our experiences less valid or, or worthy, of course. And uh, I think one thing I will say about, you know, representation in the parliament is I'm still wedded to this idea of you know diversity and difference being reflected and represented and it doesn't always mean we're going to be specialists in our field but certainly we each bring something different. Um, it's funny you say that that it quite quickly um, I some may recall that when Cheryl Kernow defected to the Labor Party in October 1997 October 15th it's sad that I remember that it was a bit of a traumatic day um, that people were asking me to run for leader then. I was just astounded that the idea of that role would be thrust upon me even you know, just a couple of years into my tenure. And I knew then that I wasn't ready, I didn't crave the position, um, and I certainly made a decision not to run. Uh, so I was deputy leader and I had leadership roles for the next few years, and it wasn't till 2001 that I was elected. Um, in retrospect, obviously, there are many things that I think, oh, what if I'd done that differently? But the one thing I did learn, because it was a relatively short period of, as leader, was that if you don't have goodwill in your party room, if you don't have a majority of your colleagues that support you, or at least support the ideals around which, you know, you are supposed to be combined and, you know, together, then you can't go on. So I think some of the things or mistakes arguably attributed to me I don't know if I could have won either way. I think there were things that I'm so proud of, some of the policies we produced, some of the people that we recruited, uh, the fact that we managed to maintain seats in a very ugly post-GST environment for my party. But yes, um, leaving that leadership role was quite heartbreaking. I remember uh, one of the people who went on to lead our party saying to me before he took the job, uh, from the day you become leader, your authority begins to erode. Uh, so you've got to make sure that you go into the job with uh, with more than 50.5%. Uh, well, and the interesting thing is, as you know, the Australian Democrat, you know, the party, the grassroots was extraordinarily supportive. Um, the participatory democratic aspect of you know being leader, oh my gosh, it was wonderful. And I still to this day am very grateful for overwhelming support of the grassroots. But uh, yep, if you have people in positions of power who are determined that you're not going to head in the same direction, well, makes your leadership untenable. And that's why, that's why I stood down. Do you have many friends still who you catch up with regularly among your uh, former Democrat colleagues? Well, remember, there are only a few of us, so and quite dispersed around the country. So I still keep in touch, uh, certainly with Senator Andrew Bartlett, and I've still got uh, and staff, as you would know. I always mm. keep in touch with party um, officials and some of the apparatchiks. Uh, certainly, um, my this team that I had when I was a senator and through leadership, I try and keep in touch with most of those staff. But um, the worst thing is some of my closest people, friends in politics, and my colleagues. Senator Sid Spindler, Senator Robert Bell, they've died, you know. I mean, I know that seems extraordinary to think, but I was so relatively young and I was serving with people who arguably, you know, did fit that stereotype of what really does constitute a senator. You know, there were socks and sandals and there were beards and, you know, they were men. Um, so, yes, I've, I've actually lost a lot of some of my closest friends and colleagues from my time in politics. And bearing in mind, I've been out for almost as long as I was in now, almost 13 years. Yes. 
You talk in uh, a book you wrote in 2019 on violence uh, about initiating a cross-party women's caucus with yes. uh, Kerry Nettle, Linda Kirk and Sophie Panopoulos, uh, uh, now Mirabella. Um, Could you get a more motley crew than that, you uh, reckon? <laughs> and then you say it didn't survive the following election. Uh, is, is it the choice of people or you think that a cross-party women's caucus was, was always going to be a struggle? No, I have a great firm belief that a women's caucus is possible. Um, the informal version of that when I first entered Parliament in 95 was a lunch that was hosted by um, uh, the former Senator Rosemary Crowley from South Australia, Labor, what an amazing woman, uh, and Cathy Sullivan from um, the Liberal Party. And even though it was informal, it was sort of a de facto kind of, you know, group getting together. And that happened off and on and off over the years, but not much. 2006 was the period of the most cross-party women's interaction ever. So you think of the therapeutic goods uh, changes on RU486, right. stem cell reform, women were behind a lot of that legislative reform, the policy work on transparent advertising and pregnancy counselling, all of these issues got us together and so we thought, yep, next logical step. After the next election, admittedly some of the really wonderful Labor women said, you know, we got this, it's okay. This is going to be a different era for women's policy, so it's not quite the same desperate need. And yes, a lot of, um, by 2008, certainly people like Kerry Nettle and myself had, uh, and Linda Kirk indeed, had left the chamber. So I still feel a caucus has a role to play and I urge women in the parliament now maybe to consider that. I want to ask you about your, uh, your, your marriage to Ian Smith. Um, there's, uh, Australians are often fascinated by uh, uh, the coupling of Republican operative Mary Madeline and Democratic operative James Carville. Um, I think you and Ian might be the closest that Australia has to that, uh, given that he's worked for the Liberals <laughs> in uh, Victoria and uh, South Australia. Uh, What's it, what's it like to be married with, to somebody with very different political opinions as somebody who is passionate about politics herself? Well, having read their book, I don't think we're quite as exciting, just quietly. Um, it's interesting because obviously over the years we've been asked these questions and I think perhaps our differences were a bit more, uh, not evident, but a bit more interesting in the early days. And by that I mean people associated Ian quite understandably with the Liberal Party, even though he's never been a member, but he worked uh, as a well, spin doctor, for lack of a better word, to uh, Jeff Kennett. So clearly he had that worked and been involved and aligned himself with that side of politics. I knew early days that the deal breaker would be a number of social issues, social justice issues, and particularly when we got together at the time it was around the refugee crisis and just after Tampa, you know, the asylum seeker uh, refugee issue. And to this day, um, Ian's passion in this space remains strong. He goes to Kakuma refugee camp every six months, well, during non-COVID periods. He has formed scholarships. He works in that sector. He makes me proud. And I think there are some fundamental ethical and policy issues. Having said that, uh, do we agree on industrial relations? Probably not. Uh, fees for education? Mm, I think possibly he's a little more inclined to uh, support that economically. Yep, certainly drier than me. Yep, okay, so there are a list of areas where we may not agree, but certainly on issues, fundamental issues of equality, so reconciliation and certainly gender equality. Well, I don't think we'd survive a week, would we, if we disagreed on those. But, um, but yeah, we also think we've changed each other a little. Uh, I let him think that maybe he's had some influence, but um, certainly he would suggest that he's had insight into issues, particularly on feminism and gender equality, that maybe he wouldn't have had if we hadn't been together. Uh, you also manage a household where at least pre-COVID you were doing quite a lot of travel uh, through your uh, your work with CEDAW and then before that as uh, Ambassador for Women and Girls. How do you uh, manage that in a way that keeps the family unit strong and functional? How does anyone manage work and family at all? I mean, I'm just particularly fortunate. Well, you're on a plane a lot, right? I mean, 
I was as ambassador for women. Well, ambassador for women girls, absolutely. I did 45 country trips during a three-year period. How do you how do you make that work and and kind of hold hold everything together else in your life together? I'm not sure if I held it together, quite frankly, but uh, a lot of organisation, uh, whether it's school pickups or whether it's making sure that one night there's at least one of us with our children any night of the year, and that is a juggle and that's why you only do it for three years. These days I've had a lot of uh, not-for-profit work that is interstate and like Ian we tend to you know minimize those trips where we can. Last year what a revelation I discovered that I'm a really good hermit. Um, I did six weeks in quarantine last year albeit from home uh, three lots of two weeks um, but also the period that I spent at home I loved. So for me, that has caused me this year to really reconsider some choices. And I will be actually cutting down a lot of work and travel. Um, but I also think, look at this, you know, we've discovered that technology, digital world, virtual, all of these things uh, may not always be a replacement for, but they actually can facilitate some of that sort of connection and meetings in a way that they haven't before. But certainly I, um, yeah, poor Ian, he hates those conversations that start with diary time. Let's talk diaries. <laughs> I think he says I'd rather stick a fork in my eyeball, but yes, no. So it's hard, but I'm so fortunate. I've got, I'm able to make choices and I've got support structures that a lot of people don't have. So, you know, if I need childcare, if I need support, and my kids are older now, Andrew, I've got a 13 year old daughter and Conrad's now, 16. So between Cordelia and Conrad, they're pretty good, independent human beings a lot of the time. As us economists would say, they've moved from the labour-intensive phase of child-rearing to the capital-intensive <laughs> phase of child-rearing. That is true. Uh, transition out of politics must have been a, a tough thing too, because so much of your identity, I guess, going in your mid-20s would have been tied up with uh, being Senator Stott Despoir, and uh, unlike the Americans, the title doesn't follow you, uh, and uh, nor, nor do all of those opportunities. How did you um, uh, recast yourself psychologically to, to sort of feel good about the next stage rather than to feel a sense of, you must have felt a bit a sense of loss, I guess. Uh, it's really interesting. I think for me, you know, Finishing on June 30 and waking up on July 1, 2008, was there wasn't really time for transition in the sense that I woke up, I had a four-month-old daughter, I had a three-and-a-half-year-old son, and yes, I didn't have all the accoutrement that come with office, um, you know, staff and computers and all the rest, but people hadn't really clued into the fact that I'd left politics. So I just remember the postman coming and saying, oh, we've got a couple of boxes that are being delivered of constituent mail. <laughs> and so the transition was sort of a bit awkward and odd, but I learnt really quickly that obviously you can make change through different fora. So the idea of getting involved behind the scenes, so in not-for-profit work, I joined Beyond Blue, I got involved with the Burnett Institute, I did all these wonderful things that didn't put me on the front page of the paper and didn't have me in a chamber where, you know, people yell at you just for the sake of it on occasion. And don't get me wrong, I'm actually quite thick-skinned in that environment. I, I enjoyed operating in the chamber. I loved, you know, the nitty-gritty of legislation. All of that I was quite fine with, so much so that the first time I gave a public speech after leaving Parliament and the audience was quiet, I didn't really know what to do. I thought, they must hate me. No one's yelling. <laughs> Say something. Interject. Um, so, yeah, the transition's interesting because you do, depending on your level of profile, there is an element of, you know, Gareth Evans would say relevance deprivation. But there's also that sense of wanting to claim and reclaim a bit of, um, not anonymity, but just not being judged for being in the supermarket on a Saturday when someone thinks you should be doing a constituent meeting or not having to do something that people perceive. You know, I, I really did have people, and I don't know if you've experienced this, where people would come up to you and you're buying groceries and they're like, oh, it's okay for some, isn't it? It's Wednesday, Wednesday afternoon, the rest of us are working. It's like, what? Honestly, I serve you, I promise, but I'm just buying groceries. So that sense of ownership, which is double-edged sword because... I shouldn't be churlish because I had such goodwill from the South Australian community and to this day I feel really grateful to the people who supported me, elected me and even those who didn't because I still think people, I would hope that there's that 
degree of goodwill towards people who do serve their country. Um, anyway. One of the big roles you've taken on is being uh, board chair of, uh, of Our Watch. And uh, in, uh, in your book on violence, you talk about the, the sheer extent of violence against women and, and contrast um, the public reaction and the government's reaction to uh, incidents of the sabotage of, uh, of strawberries with uh, an in a terrible incident, someone putting needles into strawberries, uh, the, which resulted in increased fines and uh, uh, very stern language uh, with the uh, limited response to the fact that a woman is killed by family violence every, every week. Uh, how do we change that? Well, bearing in mind that, you know, the context of that discussion was a couple of years ago and particularly after a horrific gruesome period of you know a literal death toll women being murdered violently every week in fact more than that on that occasion I think there's been a some momentum and some movement in recent times I think there's this reckoning almost going on in Australian life since the beginning of the year the Brittany Higgins revelations the uh, the march the fact that you know governments felt compelled to, if not deliver, certainly talk about framing a budget with a gender lens. Um, obviously, I feel very sad because I think that budget was a disappointment given there was a really wonderful opportunity uh, to transform, you know, to reimagine Australian society in terms of gender equality generally, but particularly in relation to eliminating violence against women and children. And I think the combination of resources, but the big issue is the cultural change piece. And when I don't see male leaders, including in our parliaments on occasion, when they don't model respectful, ethical, you know, equal, healthy relationships, then what hope have the rest of us? So I'm a big believer in not only the substantial change that's required or substantive, whether that's intervention, whether it's policies, whether it's resourcing, whether it's criminal law enforcement, psychosocial support, domestic violence shelters, etc., or whether it's the primary prevention end, the one in which I'm most involved. I just know all of that has to happen, but cultural change takes so much time. And I'd love to turbocharge it, and I think that's where the parliament and people like you play a really critical role. But it's not the only place. It's got to happen throughout society in every setting, everywhere where we you know, live, love, learn, work and play. You, you have some really powerful stuff in, uh, in, in your book about uh, the importance of not using terms like play like a girl when you're talk, talking to boys and uh, about the, the role of um, over, uh, unnecessarily gendered toys and so on. Uh, but I was reminded of a conversation I had with um, Jess Hill on the podcast a while back where she was pushing back against um, Malcolm Turnbull's line that um, disrespect of women uh, is always at the, at the, the base of violence against women. And she was saying, well, sometimes that's true, but sometimes it's also about um, power and, uh, and, and, and the... And you don't always want to see violence as flowing from sexism. Um, can we get too narrow a lens on this, do you think? Look, I think we follow the evidence base and it tells us that while there's no you know, single cause of violence against women and children or violence against women per se, we do know that there are underlying drivers and they do include rigid gender stereotypes, limits to women's independence, uh, male peer relationships that might emphasise aggression, or indeed attitudes that uh, condone or trivialise, um, you know, women and, and actually ideas of disrespect towards women. So there's a very healthy evidence base, international evidence is clear. So we do know also the power piece is absolutely critical. And I guess that relates to the fact that we do have gender inequality in our society on ever, any measure, by any measure, women do not fare as well as men in our society. But then we also know that not everyone's experience of gender inequality is the same. Obviously, colonisation, transphobia, homophobia, ableism, all of these things can compound people's, you know, these dissecting, you know, intersecting, you know, forms of discrimination and, and disadvantage make a difference. So, yeah, maybe it's not about getting hung up on those debates, but certainly if we've got an evidence base that tells us how to address it, then why wouldn't we? And what's it telling us? Working in all those different settings 
establishing basic levels of respect, whether it's workplace equality and respect programs in you know, corporate life or on the factory floor, whether it's our leaders modelling relationships, whether it's us as carers or guardians or parents, us making sure we don't treat boys and girls differently based on their sex, whether it's the sporting field, yes, you know, I want to be like Taylor Harris and I want to kick like a girl, but that's, you know, not the point, I guess. Uh, so I think we know education underpins all of that and our schools in particular. So respectful relationships, education in schools is just so important. But again, it's all multifaceted. Um, so whether it's power, uh, whether it's sexism, whether it's disrespect, however you want to define it, we know there are some fundamental drivers and we've got to address those attitudes and behaviours if we're going to move forward. For parents listening to the podcast, if you're talking to your child about respectful relationships, what are the key lessons out of a good respectful relationships program that parents can impart to their kids? Well, first of all, it's really important that, yes, if you're getting one message in schools but a different message at home or a different message on the sporting field, you risk you know, undermining some of those messages. The other thing is the research tells us that we're still the most influential people in our children's lives. I personally find that a little hard to believe at the moment, but, you know, I um, yeah, we're in that capital-intensive phase of uh, my child's or <laughs> children's development. I think just don't treat people differently based on gender whether a male, female, boy, girl, however people choose to identify, it's that simple. You know, don't expect that a girl has to dress a certain way or that she's going to be destined for a particular career because she happens to be female. There are parents who ask, and this might seem strange to some people, but they'll say, oh, you know, should we pay our children differently? You know, their, pa their pocket money. You know, little things like that, which... Of course not, you know. There might be other, and as an economist, you'd say, well, hang on, youth wages, or do we pay according to experience or age? Those issues are legit. What we talk about, though, is not always, you know, treating people differently on never treating kids differently on gender. And secondly, not always describing girls in terms of how they look. And we all do it. Mm. We mm. all do it. Um, so there are, there are many examples when it comes to the chores, you know. Again, we've got a role model, you know, um, those kind of relationships and those, um, you know, don't stereotype, you know, Ian has to do the garbage because he's the bloke or I have to do the washing up because I'm female. Don't allocate chores on that basis. And I know it seems simple to many of us, but you'd be surprised. Some of the stories I hear and even some of the traps we all fall into. And I, I you know, hear my preaching I don't always practice what I preach. I know sometimes, you know, my son will say something and I think, oh, that's wrong. I should challenge that. And you think, oh, gosh, it's just too hard sometimes, isn't it? Um, some of the things that he witnesses or she, my daughter, sees on TV or reads in books, you know, it's hard to <laughs> be challenging things all the time. I can just hope that they have a critical lens and they'll hopefully be influenced in some way to make their own decisions. Um, but, yeah, you can't police it. I know that. What about relationships uh, and uh, particularly around the issue of, of consent? Uh, are there pieces of advice that you think uh, parents should be giving their children as they're uh, navigating sex? Oh, wow. Absolutely. I think, first of all, just talking about these issues as embarrassing or awkward as they may be. Um, you know, I'm still a passionate believer in education for everything. It's the great equaliser, we know that, but it's also the one way that we can create societies that are democratic and ethical and, you know, it's so important. So have the discussions. Uh, certainly if you are raising boys, you want to talk about consent and, you know... Um, what do you want to say? Enthusiastic consent. Um, so this is the, if it's not a hell yes, it's a no? Yeah. And it's, I don't mean to simplify something that could be regarded as quite complex. And the reason I, uh, it's not just enough to talk about consent though, whether it's our schools or our parents, that consent discussion has to be embedded in a much broader discussion about how we treat each other, how we treat men and women, boys and girls in our society. So it's not just the consent piece that we need in schools. You know, well, if it's not a yes, then it's, you can't do it. Obviously that's a critical part of that infrastructure but more broadly, understanding the way we treat each other, um, if we are disrespectful, if we are you know, inappropriate, if we are sexist in our behaviours, our mannerisms, our attitudes, all of that can help create an environment where people either don't understand or don't want to uh, understand consent, in fact, actively you know, ignore you know, consent. 
whether it's enthusiastic um, or otherwise. So I had a fascinating conversation with the pornography expert Marie Crabb a while back yeah. who talks about the complete transformation of pornography, firstly from magazines to video, but secondly from uh, still images of people to uh, videos of, of um, couples uh, and often quite violent acts and she talks about sort of signature violent acts in modern pornography. Uh, how much of a problem do you think porn is in terms of uh, affecting how young people navigate relationships and um, how do you handle it as a, as a, as a mum? Uh, first of all, massively influential. And as a mother, I'm only just on the cusp of starting to understand that in my personal or real world. Uh, I think the research is really clear and, and certainly the work that um, Marie Crabb and others have done on highlighting just how ubiquitous pornography is and then drilling down to, oh my gosh, the number of times women are portrayed as victims, the number of times yes. women are experiencing violence, the number of um, you know, the perpetrators and the characteristics of, of usually men uh, in that perpetrator role and the messages that that's distilling to our children. Um, for many of them, it's their first understanding of any kind of uh, sexual behaviour and it's very concerning because it, it is about subjugation, uh, a lot about submission and a lot about violence. And indeed, that is, that is something that has changed in terms of, um, yeah, through the different medium. Um, this is work that our watch is doing at the moment because we've yet to get a really clear, you know, a definitive understanding of the impact of pornography on young men and women in Australia today. And that's something we have to do. And I know... It's something that makes governments very nervous, but the work has to be done. So I've never talked about it in Parliament, but uh, it's something that strikes me I probably should. Um, you know, Marie Crabb talks about the typical young person now having, uh, when, they, when they first lose their, if a young man first loses his virginity, typically it's after watching hundreds of hours of pornography, which is, which is frequently violent. Yes. Her best solution in talking to um, kids is to, which is what I've used with my boys, is basically to say, this stuff's out there, I don't want you to access it, but you probably will, and you'll need to make, you need to make a choice. You need to know that the more you access this stuff, uh, the more it will uh, adversely affect the way in which you, th you think about um, sex and the way in which you think about, think about women. Um, but that doesn't feel like it's a particularly <laughs> useful, re useful response. Like, uh, maybe that's the best I can do. I don't know. Do you have better ideas? I think opening the conversation is really important. I think even addressing some of those issues so that there's even a different perspective as opposed to, you know, the context being, wow, this is what sex is about. Oh, this is an interesting, you know, we would see it as a distortion, uh, arguably, of what, you know, what it should be about. If they're just seeing that and they're getting no other context, that's a problem. So opening the discussion is a really good point. I think I do worry politically about the fact that it isn't necessarily being discussed in a way that is both um, comprehensive and, and, and considered. I think that this is a real problem moving forward in the work that we're doing around uh, safe, uh, respectful, ethical relationships. And we need politicians and we need leaders to understand that this is going to be a critical part of the conversation. So let's try and do it in a way that is nuanced and clever and not, you know, crazy sensationalism. Uh, I also know that people get nervous about what's taught in school. You know, it can't just be family responsibility to have some of these debates. And I must admit, my son came home the other day and said, oh, they're bringing in a guest speaker to, uh, you know, talk about sex and stuff um, because of some of the things that have been going around in the, um, the medium and the issue of consent. And I thought, okay, don't get involved. I'll just wait and see. Came home and he said, oh, it was a brilliant session. And uh, I said, oh, really? Uh, thinking, you know, sort of, did they talk about pornography? No, not really. Although she did start the session by getting out a cucumber. And I'm like, okay, right, that's great. Um, so he said, yeah, I don't think the session was about what the teachers expected either. So um, the fact that he 
a 16-year-old boy who doesn't really want to talk to his mum about anything at the moment, he opened that door to that discussion and I could just, you know, have a few bits and pieces. But you've got to remember when it's mum's work, you know, talking about gender, I'm not everything's about gender equality, mum. So, yeah, I've got to tread carefully on occasion. But, again, the role of, you know, women and men or mums and dads or however people identify, of course, that's really important. What you can say to your son uh, actually just might just be the one thing makes him question something or act in a different way or talk to his friends. And mm. I think that's the other thing. The peer relationships so fundamentally important, especially among young boys. For a moment there, I thought you were suggesting that I would start talking to my son's friends about porn, but then I realised you were oh, ta- yeah, suggesting yeah. that he talks to them about porn, which is uh, certainly sounds mu- oh, much more sensible. Or just generally about relationships yeah, and consent. Exactly, exactly. Uh, so, oh gosh, um, I can just see your family's going, what did she say exactly, that the kids yeah. have to do? <gasps> you are never going home to the house again. Um, so you work on all of these kind of highly contested issues. You've been in the public space. Presumably you've got... You know, hate mail galore, yeah. uh, and uh, and I suspect trolls and 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 the rest. How do you manage to um, protect yourself in in that environment and stay so optimistic as you have right through your career? I think my early experiences in Parliament. Um, gave me some grounding. So in those days, Andrew, when people wanted to send you a death threat, they had to write it by hand. You've got to remember, like emails were a relatively new thing when I first entered politics. And I, I don't mean to be, you know, flippant about the fact that, yes, I mean, I woke up one morning, there was a bullet on the doorstep at my home. I had a detonator sent to the mail along with Kim Beasley during the Tampa debate, um, you know, bricks through the door, all of that stuff, um, which was terrifying for my staff, not just me you know, police protection in one place in Australia for almost seven years. You know, these things are real, and I've only talked about them since leaving office, as, you know, AFP would request that we do, or protection. So when people are nasty, I I try not to... I mean, obviously, it hurts, especially if you care about issues. If you're an emotional person, of course it bothers you. But I try and temper that with the fact that there is such goodwill in the community. I get to work every day with people who are changing literally saving lives so I think it might be a bit churlish of me to complain too much about that but what I do is also you know I'm grounded by good friends and colleagues Uh, I think sometimes when it's overwhelming and it does get overwhelming when every day you're writing about thinking about talking about violence you're dealing with personal disclosures and I'm not frontline and yet these things haunt me all the time I know that the balance to that is having time at home having time out with friends, being able to talk to people. And I'm a big believer if you need to get help, you know, especially if you're someone who has been a victim or survivor, then you must, you know, never ever feel ashamed to ask for help. And as a former deputy chair of Beyond Blue, I'm a great believer too in trying to eradicate that stigma in relation to people needing support, whether that's, you know, catch up with a mate, for coffee, uh, or in my case, uh, every Sunday night without fail, uh, catching up with my um, uh, NGA posse. No girl, no guys allowed. NGA. My girlfriends get together, and Ian and his mates. NGA. No girls allowed. They go to the pub and have a catch up, and they talk about life, the universe, and everything. And that's really healthy. Natasha, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Probably. <laughs> You don't have to be a girly swat all the time, have some fun. Uh, No, I would genuinely believe if I could tell my teenage self something, it would be that some of the difficulties, some of the hardships that the family is experiencing won't, won't define you or perhaps they'll shape you in good ways, but they won't always be a part of your life, that you can, you know, that will be something that you will move on from uh, and think of it in a positive way that um, it will make you a really strong person and hopefully with a reasonable outlook on life and wanting to do good. What's something you used to believe but no longer do? That social progress or social justice and change is inevitable. Um, I thought progress would just take place, that we'd continue to move in a positive direction and While I always knew that things were difficult, you know, campaigns took time, I realise now just the eternal vigilance that's required to 
yeah, to make change and particularly bring about some kind of social justice in the world, whether that's meaningful reconciliation or whether it's gender equality, you know, whether it's, you know, a sustainable, greener, fairer world, all the things that I love and I'm passionate about and they're the reasons I went into politics in the first place. Did I think that the rate and pace of change would be so slow? I didn't. So that's that shocked me over the last, uh, what, quarter of a century. When are you most happy? Mm. Listening to music. What sort of music? All kinds. So I, I love all kinds of music. I, I used to be in state opera company, believe it or not. Um, played the cello. I, I love classical music. But you can't go past good 80s music as well. So Duran Duran, you know, uh, look, just a litany. I, people will pay me out for my music choice, I'm sure. Music calms me. It makes me happy, um, as does reading. So I, I, and I'm happy recharging on my own as well, even though probably my happiest moments are with family and friends, you know, when we're all happy, you know. <laughs> uh, on the state opera company, what's your favourite? Oh, gosh. What's your favourite opera? favorite opera do you like the italians the, oh yes the yeah person? yes um i went to see lucia de Lammermoor when oh. joan sutherland performed and i sat next to um to her husband and so that's but that's a bit of a mad crazy one um absolutely i saw sweeney todd the other day that was that was a fun sort of modern opera um and i performed in noise flutty benjamin britain but i think everyone yeah, everyone does a Benjamin Britten at some stage. Um, so, yeah, love I opera. I struggled with Britten. Yeah, yeah that's, that's what I meant. Everyone goes to Britain. Um, Mary Widow was probably my first and probably one of my favourites. But my true love in terms of culture will always be ballet. And the greatest thing happened last year. I was appointed to the Australian Ballet Board. And so the greatest thing for me is being on a board that is not only, you know, interesting and informative and passionate, you've got to do all your good governance, but I get to see ballet which I I love perhaps more than anything. I feel like half the ballets I've seen in my life have been the Nutcracker. Why is it so dominant? Oh because it's the old favourite and it's wheeled out uh, often too much yeah Uh, and because it's a Christmas ballet so it's one that you always know you'll get the crowds to so um, I'm feeling very sad the Australian ballet we were starting we were opening next week sorry week after next counterpoint in Melbourne and of course that's had to be postponed as a consequence of COVID. So I think of the struggling arts industry over the last couple of years or the last 18 months in particular. And I just don't, you know, I just hope we can, you know, move on from this awful pandemic. But yes, ballet. A ballet, I've, you know, always thought I'd be a ballet dancer, not a politician. So there you go. And I've, yeah, that didn't happen, obviously. There was no chance. No chance. Natasha, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life? Clearly my mother's had a huge influence in shaping my understanding of what is ethical, what is appropriate, imbuing in me a sense of doing the right thing. Um, But again, I go back to education. Isn't it education and books and history that help us understand what is good and what is bad? Um, For some people that might be, you know, religion might help shape that. Um, I'm not religious, but I, you know, and the closest thing I probably have to a religion is a sense of, you know, fundamental, unshakable belief in the idea that people are equal and should be treated that way. So, yeah, I suspect mother, but I, I think I've had wonderful opportunities in life to learn from so many people. And you think of the people I deal with, you know, day in, day out, who all bring amazing ideas um, and backgrounds, and that helps me hopefully stay in a very ethical lane but also want to create an enlightened or contribute in some small way to an enlightened democratic and ethical world. Natasha Stottespoir, thanks so much for taking your time to share your wisdom on the Good Life podcast today. Pleasure, thank you Andrew. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life, Andrew Lee in Conversation. If you enjoyed this discussion, I reckon you'll love past interviews with Cordelia Fine, Marie Crabb and Rosie Batty. Also, I want to ask you a favour. On June the 6th, I'll be competing in the Cairns Ironman to raise money for the Indigenous Marathon Foundation. To make a donation, just go to my Facebook or Twitter page to find the link. Thanks in advance. Next week, we'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a happier, healthier and more ethical life.